We've had a request from someone to tell you a little bit about their life and testimony, so I'd like her to come up now. She just asked me at the start of the service, I thought that's great. So, what's your name and where do you come from? Uh, my name is Subi, I'm all the way from India. I'm working in King's College Hospital, so started my job three months ago. Yeah. Okay, if you hold the mic nice and close. Uh, so Subi has come over from India to work at King's College Hospital, but you wanted to tell us especially about an encounter you had recently? Um, I'm a Christian, uh, but I was not aware about what is ex- what exactly Christianity is. Being in a Christian, and I was not aware about anything. And I got a chance to go to Hillsong exactly a couple of months ago, and from there, I got a chance to receive Jesus as my Savior. And they just asked us to raise our hands if anybody wants to receive Jesus as our Savior. And I simply raised my hands and I said whatever they said. And after that, there was a prayer. And through that prayer, I don't know what happened to me. The tears were rolling up down my cheeks and I don't know what was happened to me exactly. So that made a change to me. And... You know, I I really accepted Jesus as my savior, and I just want to you know uh, share one of my one of the miracle that happened in my life as well, because we need to write an exam which will decide our stay in this kingdom. So if we didn't come out of that exam, so we need to go back, and we didn't get uh, get our registration or anything. So it will be like you know. So uh, my exam was on uh, May seventeenth. So I attend my exam. And after the exam, I was much sure that I made a big mistake, so I couldn't come out of that. And I came to this church last Sunday, and I was just praying to Jesus that, God, just hold my faith up. Whatever is the result, just hold my faith faith up. And I asked, she prayed for me, and I was just okay after, and after the church, I went back. And I was much sure that I'm not going to clear this exam this time. I should take another chance for get it cleared. So Monday, Tuesday evening, I got my results. And it was just a miracle that I passed in my exam with my first chance. And, and I, I thank Jesus for that wonder he d- that did with me in my life. And thank you all for the prayer and support you all rendered me. Thank you. Thank you very much, Subi. That's lovely. So it's really good that uh, Subi has come over here. And that exam, she thought she'd failed. And Sheila said, we need a miracle. Uh, and people were praying. And she passed. That's absolutely wonderful. But also even more wonderful that uh, you had a Christian background in India, but you encountered Jesus and you met Jesus at that meeting a couple of months ago. That's really, really wonderful. Thank you for sharing. Now, preachers have a tendency to go on too long, don't they? I got an amen, did I? Who was that from? The brief Alison. So it's something we've been thinking about for a while, and I think we'll do it from uh, starting today, and I will empower Scott as the leader of the meeting. So I've got half an hour, okay? Is that all right? Okay, half an hour. And in 20 minutes' time, Scott will hold this up. <laughs> it's still green, and it says 10 minutes left. And then five minutes later, he will hold this up. Five minutes left. And then finally, 
please come into land, that he'll keep up until I do. Do you think that's a, a reasonable thing to institute in this church? Luke likes it. Pardon? Well, as chair of the trustees, it's your job to keep Scott awake during the sermon. That's your job, Fiona. Don't ask me. Can we put the first slide up, then I can change it. That's wonderful. We're looking at the life of Elijah, and uh, we find his story beginning in 1 Kings chapter 17. And uh, I'll just read the first part of 1 Kings 18, where we are today. Later on, in the third year of the drought, there was a big drought over the land, the Lord said to Elijah, go and present yourself to King Ahab. Tell him that I will soon send rain. So Elijah went to appear before Ahab. And the story goes on, he eventually gets to Ahab, and then he calls this big, he creates this big showdown. Do you know the story? He's on Mount Carmel, and he says, well, who's the true God? Is it God of uh, the Jews? Is it, it, is it Yahweh? Or is it Baal, the God they were worshipping? And uh, do you know the story? They set up the two altars, and one of the gods answers by fire. So that's what we want to look at today. I haven't got time to read the, the whole story, but you'll find it there in 1 Kings 18. Just a quick recap about Elijah. When was he around? When was he around? Anyone know? In the Old Testament. Very good, Paul. It's kind of 900 to 850 BC, around then, so a long time ago. And who was the king then? I've given you a clue already. Ahab. And was he a good or evil king? Very, very evil. And where was Elijah from? He was a Tishbite, so he's from Tishbe. It's a tiny little village. So if you come from the most obscure little village in Bulgaria, don't worry. God can still use you. We have a couple of Bulgarians in the house today. Tiny village, we don't know really where it was. And it was in the, in the section of Israel called Gilead. It was in that area. And what Bible books is Elijah in, just to check Scott's awake? Yep, one king's and his story finishes in the beginning of two kings. We also hear him mentioned in other Bible books and in the New Testament as well. And what does his name mean? I'll exclude Naomi, she'll know. She's our Hebrew consultant. What does his name mean? God judges. That's another prophet. Which one's that? Is that Daniel? Yeah, Daniel is God judges. Good try. What's El? God. And what's Yah? God Yahweh. So Yahweh is God. That's what his name means. And that's what's proven in his life story. Is Baal God or is Yahweh God? Elijah. Yahweh is God. Yahweh is the Lord. So we're looking at today at who is God and so what? Who's God and what's the implications of that? So what? And we're going to look at the narrative, just go through again quickly what happened in the story and then think about, well, how can we apply it to our lives today? What difference can that make to us now? 
So looking at the, the narrative, looking through the story, there's the worship of idols and false gods in the land. Anyone relate to that? Anyone think of lands where idols and false gods are worshipped? Now in 1 Kings 16 verse 30 it says this, Ahab the son of Omri became king. He did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So this king has come in and he's doing evil in God's sight. And that's impacting the whole of the nation, the whole of society. What was his wife's name? Jezebel. Again, a very well-known name, isn't it? We use that name today. You married Jezebel. She was the daughter of... That's a harder one. Ethbaal. Uh, he was king of Sidon. And so Ahab goes to serve and worship Baal. He builds an altar to Baal, this false god. And he also makes some Asherah poles. What's an Asherah pole? There are these wooden poles carved uh, as female deities... Uh, like to encourage worship of sex gods. So you're saying that Baal is the real Lord, not God, and we're kind of worshipping sex. And that was the two things, sex and power being worshipped uh, in the wrong way at the heart of society. Stuff happening years ago has resonances today, doesn't it? What could Baal do? What were his attributes supposed to be? Well, I'm not an expert on ancient gods, but I've been told that he was a kind of a sun god, so he could produce warmth and heat and fire. He was also a god of fertility and productivity. So the warmth of the sun would come down. He would also be able to send rain and give good crops. And alongside him were the sex gods. So that's what Baal was about. So he should have been able to according to the belief of the people, be able to provide them with crops, shine the sun, send the rain, and bring fertility to the land. That's what he was billed as being able to do. So the people of Israel start to honour him, they start to worship him, and then Jezebel has a campaign. What's her campaign? To kill all the true prophets of God. And that kind of resonates as well. We want to shut up those people that listen to God and have the courage to speak out from, for God. Those people are people that power and authority that's worshipping a false God wants to silence. And that was what's happening. So Jezebel starts a campaign to murder the faithful prophets. And God says it's time for that to stop. In this nation of the earth where the name of God should be known and honoured, the one place in the world where God was specifically working at that time, the people he was calling together in Israel should worship the true God. And this false worship and the lies and the evil that's happening must come to an end. And so God is going to intervene and God chooses one person, Elijah, who will stand up for him and speak out for him. So Elijah brings the message you heard in the previous weeks from God, there'll be no rain until he says there will be. So God gives him the power to declare that on God's behalf, a huge responsibility, and the drought begins. And as the story rolls on until today, three years later, uh, things are in a desperate state, there'll be rotting corpses of animals around, people will be desperate for food and desperate for drink 
And why did that go on? Why did that go on? I think God needed to intervene. And if the knowledge of God wasn't to be wiped out from the earth, he had to start with the people of God and put them back on track in worshipping him. And they put their trust in Baal. They say, well, Baal's going to feed us. Baal's going to send us the rain. Baal's going to send us the sun. Baal's going to look after us. And we've got these sex gods as well. Isn't life great? And in the drought, God shows that if people worship false gods, it's ultimately no good. It's barren and useless. And he has to demonstrate that. The people were having faith uh, in the wrong god, in false gods. And God demonstrates very strongly and very clearly that if your faith is misplaced, it'll be disastrous for you and also disastrous for the world. And if he just sent rain and stopped the droughts, people would say, oh, Baal's woken up again. We still love Baal. God had to demonstrate thoroughly that following false religion, following false gods, is barren and worthless and dangerous. And so I think probably over those three years, some of them were starting to wake up a bit. So we're, we're worshipping Baal, but where's the fertility? Where's the food? What's going on? What's going wrong? And then Elijah comes back onto the scene. Ahab meets him. How does Ahab greet Elijah? Fun? Yeah. Oh, you troublemaker. You troubler of Israel. And again, you see, when the powers that be are twisted, they accuse the one man who's standing up for God of being a troubler and a dangerous person to society and the reverse is absolutely actually true so truth is turned on its head hey you troubler of israel that's what he says but elijah comes back and he says this i haven't troubled israel you have he's not licking the boots of the king he's confident in his god i'm not the troubler of israel it was you and he says let's have this big showdown and they're on Mount Carmel, and some people think that was known at one point as the Mountain of Baal. So he's right in the middle of the enemy territory. And he says, let's bring the 450 prophets of Baal. Let's bring the 400 prophets of Asherah. Let's bring the whole people of Israel, and we're going to have a showdown and find out who the true God is. So oxes are prepared, one for each group, one for Elijah, and one for the other group. And then the God who supernaturally sends the fire to consume the sacrifice is the true God. And everyone says, yep, let's go for that. That sounds like a great idea. And then Elijah is really confident in God. He raises the stakes if you read the story. So the prophets of Baal start crying out first, come on Baal, ignite the, the fire, uh, burn up this sacrifice, and absolutely nothing happens. So Elijah says, come on, shout a bit louder. So he starts shouting a bit louder. And uh, then he says, you've got to call out with a really loud voice. You know, he might be occupied. And uh, that word occupied could be he's busy or he's lost in thought. So they start shouting louder. And then Elijah says, well, maybe he's gone aside. And we don't know for sure. That could be he's gone to another country. He's far away, so shout louder. Or it could be he's in the toilet. So he might, you know, he might be busy, shout louder, they shout louder. He might be in the toilet, shout louder, and they're shouting louder and dancing around and going nuts. 
and he's being wonderfully sarcastic, isn't he? I like that of Elijah. And they shout, and they go wild, and they frantically dance, and then they start to cut themselves and stick spears into themselves and hope the flow of blood will appeal to, to Baal, who's not answering. But chapter 18, verse 29, says this, There was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. The heavens were brass. The silence was deafening. Three years of drought, a dramatic showdown. God demonstrates that what people are trusting in, what people are worshipping, amounts to nothing. And they had to learn that lesson. They had to learn it a hard way. But it was a really important lesson to learn. And then there's the decisive victory. And uh, at the end of the story, uh, Elijah repairs the altar of God. And that word repairs apparently means literally heals. So there's brokenness in God's people. They've abandoned the ways of God. Their worship of God has broken down. And God raises up someone to say, come on, I'm going to repair this. We're going to worship the true God again. So he rebuilds or repairs or heals the altar of God. He takes 12 stones. What does that remind you of? The 12 tribes of Israel, he's a bit like a new Moses or a new Joshua. He gets, he wants the whole people of God included. It's not just Elijah getting it right. I'm the one guy that's still faithful to God. He wants to get the nation, the people of God, back to worshipping the true God. So he includes one stone for each of the 12 tribes. And then he raises the stakes even further. He's, he's going to call for fire. So it's, it's, let's demonstrate this is really impossible. So he gets them to get some water and throw it over the sacrifice. And then he says, go and get some more water and throw that over. And then he says, well, third time, go and get some more water and throw it over. I want to demonstrate that something miraculous is happening here. Now, some people have a problem with that. They think it's a drought. Where did they get all the water? Well, the, probably the most logical answer is just down the road to the Mediterranean Sea. So there's plenty of seawater to throw on that they couldn't drink. So he makes it impossible. He raises the stakes. And then the fire of the Lord falls. It consumes the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And what word would they have said? when they were saying that Elijah so his name was being called they were honouring God but the prophet's name was being wrapped up in that so that's the story how many of you knew that story before yep you've heard it so what can we what can we learn maybe there's lots of things to learn and things that uh, you can think of and things that can apply in different ways so let's pick up a few and I'll leave the rest to you how long have I got, Scott? Fifty, halfway there. That's all right, isn't it? Decisive moments. Firstly, decisive moments. There are decisive moments in life. There are watershed moments in our lives and in the lives of nations. And today's story was a decisive moment in the history of Israel. Are they going to worship false gods or are they going to turn back to the true God? Let's think of decisive moments. Maybe you're called to pray into decisive moments in society. I love it that the Maxwells are here today. The wonderful Maxwells are here for a family photo. So if you're a Maxwell, give us a wave. 
there's, there's 15 of them here today so uh, some of them are out uh, with the kids work but it's wonderful but I love when Bruce prays because he's, he's praying for what's going on in Congo or different parts of the world he's got heart and burden for what's going on around the world and maybe you're called to pray into a decisive moment in a nation in the world and pray that they no longer are suffering the burden of being uh, in lies and ruled by terrible governments and worshipping false gods, but they'll find the truth of who God is. On a kind of national and historical scale, when you think of the 20th century, what do you think of? Lots of things, lots of things. One of the things you think of is world wars. The two, the, the, it wasn't a concept of a world war until they, they coined the First World War that. And the second question, and this relates to last week, what does Pentecost stand for? What does Pentecost stand for? Coming of the Holy Spirit, so the power of the Holy Spirit being released. At the start of the 20th century, what happened? There was the move of the Holy Spirit. Andy last week talked about Azusa Street uh, in California where the power of the Spirit came. Uh, we know of the Welsh revival that was amazing in 1904. The Holy Spirit was being poured out and the Pentecostal movement was beginning. And in 1907, there was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Germany as well. Has anyone heard of the Berlin Declaration? scratching your heads from history, Pat's heard of it. What happened in 1909 in Berlin, 56 leading Protestant evangelical theologians got together and they made a public declaration. They said that the move of the Spirit in Germany is wrong, it's not from God, it's not from the devil, and it should be rejected. So the leading theologians got together in Berlin and declared that this move of the Spirit is not from God. Now, would the history of the 20th century have been a bit different if they hadn't done that? In that vital moment in the life of the nation, and a moment that maybe impacted the whole world, there are people that stood up, they're meant to be part of the people of God, and said, this move of the Holy Spirit is of the devil, we must reject it. In 2009... <laughs> They, they made a public renunciation of that declaration. A hundred years later, in Berlin, they publicly renounced it. But there is a decisive moment in the lives of nations, and we want people not to come out and say, the work of God is the work of the enemy. But we need people to stand up in the decisive moments and choose to follow and affirm the work of the true God. And that can make a difference in the whole of the nation. On a more personal level, what are the decisive moments in your life? And sometimes they're around big things in life, moves, jobs, uh, relatives dying can be a real challenge. How do we respond? And so in the decisive moments of my life, am I going to respond like Elijah and stay faithful to the true God and honour him? Or am I going to move away from God and deny him? It's a real challenge. And sometimes those are times of real pain. But God can move in wonderful ways, in decisive watershed moments. I was thinking of some of the decisive moments in the life of this church. I was thinking of Jenny being at death's door. If you don't know Jenny, one of the pastors here, 
going to King's College Hospital and being told by the consultant with Glenn and Lois and the family that she was at death's door and they didn't expect her to stay this side of it and at that decisive moment it's wonderful how God broke through and brought Jenny back with no damage at all a wonderful decisive moment that's a real blessing there's other decisive moments thinking about the buildings we have as a church we've got a building on uh, Sydenham Road and I remember without the money without the power whatever just putting my hand on that building when we didn't have it and praying God if we can use this building for the kingdom of God more than anyone else please give it to us and then a whole series of circumstances came through and we got the building we've had it for the last 15 years seeking to use it for the kingdom of God and the other building we have use of is the Hope Centre in Forest Hill we put in a bid for it for a five year lease four years ago and we were told we couldn't have it but then something turned round in that situation we were given it and the food bank has been able to provide a service there and in the last five years 20,000 people have been fed so there are decisive watershed moments and we need to face them and we need to say Lord make me more like Elijah help me to trust in you help me to declare your truth in these decisive moments and Lord help me to pray for nations for decisive moments in the lives of uh, the nations in this world today and then finally on that one the, the great decisive moment of all time and I'm glad Subi gave her testimony today is Jesus he wasn't a God that fell by fire I believe the presence of God was in the fire that fell in Elijah's time but the decisive moment was just outside Jerusalem nearly 2,000 years ago when God was in Jesus coming to reconcile the world to himself and he didn't fall by fire but he came in love and self-sacrifice and he gave his life on the cross and then we have the choice of how to respond to that decisive moment I'm really glad Subi put her hand up and said yes I want in I want you Lord and that's the most decisive moment in anyone's life and in all of human history how will we respond to that let's move on more quickly in the others before Scott tells me to stop and the second is a gift of faith Elijah feels incredibly confident doesn't he he comes across that way and it's like one person against the king and queen and 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah 850 plus royalty to one but he was confident in God and we can have that confidence as well because one plus God outweighs 850 plus royalty you individually plus God makes all the difference and pray that God will give you a gift of faith in watershed moments and Alpha Antonia was uh, talking about her legs she had her legs badly broken and she was suffering pain and she was crying out to God and if you were here a couple of years ago when someone had a word of knowledge about someone with those pains and she came forward I think Pat and someone else prayed for her and she was healed at that moment and hasn't had that problem again one of her legs grew and she enjoyed that healing she found a gift of faith in a decisive moment where a word of knowledge was given for her 
So let's pray that God will give us a real gift of faith. Not think, it's hopeless. Everyone's against me. Everyone's turned away from God. But think, Lord, give me that gift of faith that I can say something, I can pray something that will make a real difference here. Next one, divided allegiance. Elijah challenges the people of God. What does he say? 1 Kings 18.21 Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. How long will you waver between two opinions? That's a real problem. Divided allegiance doesn't really get us anywhere in life and in faith. On the subject of prayer, James 1.6 says this, But when you ask God, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that's blown and tossed by the wind. And in this story, we're encouraged to look strongly to God and not to waver, not to have one foot in one camp and one foot in the other camp. We're encouraged to put our whole hope and confidence in God. There's no plan B. There's no plan B. In Revelation 3, verse 15, it says this, speaking to the church in Laodicea, I know all the things you do. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other, but since you're like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. That's really challenging. I'm really challenged by that. Am I too casual about my faith? Or am I committed? If I'm going to follow God, I need to follow God wholeheartedly and really go for it. That's the challenge I find in the story of Elijah. I heard uh, someone that was a bit kind of indecisive being described in this way, that they were sitting on the fence with both ears to the ground. And it's a rather interesting image. It's conjured up and uh, painful and a bit ridiculous. And it sounds very uncomfortable. But are we sitting on the fence with both ears to the ground? Or are we going to say, who's God? The Lord is God. And I'm going to follow him, and I'm going to live for him. I'm going to take it seriously. I'm going to be in his camp. And I'm going to make a difference for him in my life. A friend called David, and uh, he wanted to make sure he stood up for, for God. When he went to a new workplace, he always made sure in the first few days he said something that indicated that he was a Christian, he was a follower of Jesus. He said, I wanted to nail my colours to the mask, and it actually helped me. He said, I'm more likely to behave like a Christian if I make it known from day one. But he made it clear where he was. People could reject him for that. People could come and talk to him and accept him for that. But he made it clear who he belonged to. What did Joshua say? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's wonderful, isn't it? So, Lord, help us to be confident in Jesus and confident in your word to us. And that's backed up by the next one, faith having implications. Uh, What does it say again? 1 Kings 18.21, Elijah said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. And faith demands following. Faith demands following. The question of who's the real God isn't just an academic question. So if you were there, if you're part of the people of God, you saw the uh, false prophets going berserk and nothing happening, and then you saw Elijah praying to the true God and fire falling. 
what do you do? Do you say, ah, okay, now we know Yahweh's God. Right, let's get on with life. What's for dinner? It's got to have more of an impact on our lives than that. Faith has implications. Faith demands following. So if God is God, it's got to affect the way I live, the things I do, how I use my money, how I treat people, how I speak, the values that I hold. If God is God, faith has implications and I want to follow him. And that's true of Elijah's life. And we hear about him first in 1 Kings 17. And it says this, The word of the Lord came to Elijah. And three verses later it says, So Elijah went and did according to the word of the Lord. Simple obedience was true of his life. The word of the Lord came to Elijah and so he went and did according to the word he put it into practice how do we know God's speaking to us well it might come through the Bible or it needs to be at least in line with the Bible it might come when we're praying we can get counsel from good Christian friends we can look for signs to confirm what God's saying but once we know what the Lord is saying let's put it into practice We'll have time for the next point next week, the power of prayer. But Elijah's mentioned a few times in the New Testament, and probably the most famous one is this, James five, sixteen: The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was as human as we are, and yet he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, and none fell for three and a half years. Then he prayed again, And the sky sent down rain, and the earth began to yield its crops. All he had was prayer. He was like naked apart from prayer, not literally, but that's all he had. He didn't have power, he didn't have the army, he didn't have royalty, he didn't have connections, he just had prayer. But he prayed in faith in the name of God, and the whole day was one. And we need to honour and value prayer Is it that I'll try and do everything I possibly can to make things work out, and if all that fails, then I'll pray? Shouldn't it be the other way around? I'll start with God and start in prayer, and then do the things he tells me to do, the little part that I have to play. And I need to know and learn that the most effective tool I have is prayer. It's a challenge to me. I'm more of a doer than a prayer in that sense, but it is the most powerful tool because that's the way we're trusting in God and then finally what's your mission hopefully you've picked up some clues from this but I just wanted to finish up by mentioning the other guy the other good guy in the story what's the other guy called yes Jen is on the money there Obadiah it's not the same Obadiah who wrote the book of Obadiah but Elijah was uh, he might have been full of fear inside but he came across very bold and in your face and he wasn't intimidated by the king and he did this big showdown and he raised the stakes and God answered by fire but there was another guy earlier in the story that I didn't read out and his name was Obadiah and he had played a part in announcing Elijah's return and he also had a part in God's purposes but he was very different from Elijah Elijah lived away from court away from the corridors of power 
this kind of isolated individual that came in and spoke for God. But Obadiah was around. He was a chief administrator. He was a top civil servant. He was working for the government. He was inside the system. And he doesn't appear as bold and in your face as Elijah does. He's a bit diffident. He's cautious. He's fearful. But he honors God and he plays a very significant part in what God's doing. Jezebel wants to kill all the prophets. What does Obadiah do? Takes a hundred of them. He hides them in two caves, a great personal risk. And then he keeps them fed and watered. So at personal risk and personal cost, he looks after and saves a hundred people. Is he a compromiser because he's working for the government? Or is he God's man quietly working behind the scenes and frustrating what the enemy is doing? And so I don't want us to go away and think, I'm not an Elijah. I can't do that kind of bold stuff. But I've got a mission from God. And maybe in the spirit of Elijah, there'd be a time where I can say something powerful and bold, confident in God and prayerful, and that will break through for God's kingdom. But maybe I'm more like Obadiah. I honour God, I trust him, I'm in the system. But I'm working for God and I'm doing great things for him in a quieter way. But whichever way, one way or the other, like Elijah and like Obadiah, we've all got a part to play. We've all got at least one spiritual gift. We've all got something to contribute. We're all a witness, either good or bad one, for Jesus in the world where we're placed, where we live, where we work. We've all got a mission for God. And we can all make a difference. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you we can learn from your word. We thank you for this man, Elijah, that you called. We thank you for his confidence in you, his willingness to stand for you, his courage and his prayerfulness. And Lord, thank you that you've called all of us to serve you and to love you. And Lord, we want to make a difference, whether it's us helping one person meet you, we want to play that role. Whether it's us playing a significant role in the life of the nation, help us not to shy away from it. Lord, help us to hear what you're saying to us and put it into practice. Thank you, Lord. Amen.